I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, later on we'll be speaking with legendary progressive radio host Tom Hartman about his new book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, how Reaganism gutted America, and how we can restore its greatness. But first, David Marchik of the Transition Lab podcast and co-author of the new book, The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an oral history of America's presidential transitions, joins us to discuss the history of presidential transitions. And yes, we will be talking about the 2020 election and the turbulent transition from Trump to Biden. As you'll find out, however, it's not the only difficult transition period between presidents that has occurred in this country's history. We'll also discuss some of the smoother presidential transitions and what makes a peaceful transition of power possible. A great deal of work goes into the transition from one president to another. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with David Marchik co-author of the new book, The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an oral history of America's presidential transitions. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with, David Marchik, co-author with Alexander Tippett and A.J. Wilson of the new book, The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an oral history of presidential transitions. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the book, I know that you were involved with uh, a podcast, the Transition Lab uh, podcast, and uh, I, I was curious what led to your interest in this subject of presidential transitions and how did the Transition Lab uh, come about? Great, great question. So, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'm actually just getting over COVID right now, so I'm isolating at home still, so a little cough, but I'm fine. So I was working at the Partnership for Public Service, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization focused on improving the effectiveness of, of government. And the Partnership for Public Service had an organization in it called the Center for Presidential Transition, which focuses on making presidential transitions better, faster, and smoother under the theory that a launch to a new presidency is dependent on the effectiveness of a presidential transition. So we were working on with both the Biden team and the Trump team on transition issues. And we wanted to educate the American public and particularly Congress and opinion leaders on the importance of a presidential transition. Up until the 2020 election, when transition issues were unfortunately on the front page of every newspaper because the peaceful transition of power was at risk. The focus on presidential transitions was kind of a more academic and sleepier issue. And so what we wanted to do with the podcast was educate the American public and particularly Congress and opinion leaders in Washington, D.C. on how important it is to have a smooth and effective transition and how important it is for those that are involved in presidential campaigns to allocate the time, resources, and staff to ensure that they're ready to go on January 20th. Sorry about that. Uh, so. Let's talk about uh, the the purpose of uh, presidential transitions and you know just why they're so important. I mean, I, I think people have an impression of why after uh, the last election, but but maybe we can go into the details a little bit, the weeds. So, the way that our transitions are designed is really a poorly way to organize an entity. So when there's a change in leadership at a major corporation, a CEO leaves, that CEO may bring in five or 10 new people. In the UK, when there's a new prime minister, a new prime minister will bring in new ministers and each minister may bring in one or two people into their ministries. In the United States, when there's a change in the presidency, the entire top layer of the government leaves. It's vacant. And so a new president has to appoint 4,000 officials, 1,250 of whom need to be confirmed by the Senate. And it's a mammoth task. And it's important for the United States because this is a moment when the country's at its, its most vulnerable. Um, our adversaries know that it's a time when the country's looking inward and there's, there's period of time where one president leaves and another president is coming in. And we know that there have been targeted attacks on the United States during this period. In the last election, um, it was really a matter of life and death. 
at the time when President Biden was elected and President Trump was leaving office, it was the peak of the COVID-19 crisis. We had over 4,000 people dying a day. Between the election and the inauguration, 172,000 Americans died of COVID, 172,000. And so the most important issue facing the country at that moment was not an esoteric policy issue. It was how to get shots in arms, how to get the vaccine that was developed into the arms of hundreds of millions of Americans. And so there, the cooperation between the outgoing administration and the incoming was essential for life and death of many, many Americans. So if we could, what are some of the you know, nitty gritty details. What are the tasks involved in making a, a peaceful transition happen or or what makes the smoothest transition possible? Okay, so let's think about the two parties. You have the outgoing and you have the incoming. Let's start with the outgoing. So the outgoing under law is required to prepare briefing materials, to have plans, to facilitate engagement with the incoming administration to organize the government into various councils and working groups to prepare for the peaceful transition of power. And so that the day after the election, when a new president has been elected, the president-elect can send teams of people into each agency to understand what's going on. What are the big issues? What are the problems? Um, what is coming down the pike that we need to be prepared for? So, for example, in the last election, the biggest issue was COVID. And so there, the Department of Health, the Department, the Budget Office, uh, and the Defense Department were all working on distributing vaccines. And the outgoing was required to be cooperative with the incoming. For the president-elect, um, there, it's a it's a much bigger gargantuan task. There you have the president needs to be ready to appoint a White House staff, which is hundreds of people that need to be in place January 20th, to appoint 4,000 people across the government, to prepare policies um, that will be announced on day one, to prepare executive orders, to engage with foreign leaders, since there literally is a list of uh, an inbox of foreign engagements that need to be required, that need to be engaged. And um, it's a gargantuan task for uh, a new president-elect. The, the transition team will often prepare day-to-day -day schedules for the first month of a president's office. What, are, what is that president going to focus on? What are the issues? What are the priorities? And then within a month or so of taking office, a new president has to prepare a budget proposal for the Congress and articulate his or her budget priorities for the United States. So it's a huge undertaking that, that and there's only 75 or 76 days between the election and the transition, and a president needs to be prepared. So I want to get into the, the, the Trump to Biden uh, transition, but first, what, what would you say is a good example of uh, a presidential transition that went very smoothly as opposed to what we saw with the last election where it was very chaotic 
um, and very scary for a lot of us. Do we have any examples of uh, presidential transitions that we can look at and say, hey, this is a good model for how it should uh, pan out? So I'd say the gold standard of a transition was the Bush to Obama transition. Let me just set the set the groundwork for this. So President George W. Bush, as you recall, had a shortened transition because of Bush v. Gore. So a normal transition is 75, 76, 77 days. He only had 35 days because the Supreme Court didn't rule on Bush v. Gore until December 12th or 13th. So you had litigation in Florida that, you know, had to be adjudicated. Eight months after taking office, 9-11 occurred. And what President Bush found was that he didn't have his full national security team in place. He only had 50, 57% of the appointees at the senior level of government in his national security agencies. And over half of that group, so 57%, half of that, so 28-ish percent, had been there for less than two months when the United States experienced the greatest terrorist attack on the United States since Pearl Harbor, basically. So the 9-11 Commission did an autopsy of what happened on 9-11, what went well, what didn't. And one of the things they found was that the shortened transition imperiled President Bush's ability to get his team in place and therefore compromised national security readiness. Fast forward to year seven of the Bush administration, he basically said, whomever comes next, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, I want them to have a better, smoother transition than I did. So he instructed his chief of staff, Josh Bolton, to roll out the red carpet for the two candidates. It was McCain and Obama that were running. Obviously, Bush supported the Republican. He supported John McCain. But he basically said, if, if Obama wins, I'm going to treat him the same way that I would McCain. And so they, the, the outgoing administration met with the incoming Obama team starting in the summer and, and the McCain team starting in the summer. They prepared. And it was prescient because at the time of the election, we were in the midst of two wars, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And also and, economic troubles. Started. And a financial crisis, the greatest financial crisis since uh, the Great Depression. And so President Obama... President-elect Obama and President Bush were able to collaborate on economic issues, the economic recovery, and also, most importantly, send a signal to the American people that the government was going to work, regardless of the change in power. And that shortened and lessened the impact of the financial crisis and allowed President Obama to get a running start and be able to attack all the issues in the financial crisis and help uh, the United States recover. So then, fast-forwarding to you know, the transition from Trump to Biden. And and I know people hone in on, on the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, but just beyond the insurrection, what really went wrong? And I, I know we're going to go into the weeds uh, with this because I the, the 2020 election is still, I think, on everyone's mind. So what, what, what are the nitty gritty details of what went so wrong with the Trump to Biden transition? So there was, I, I, let's phrase it in the good, the bad, the ugly. There was some good, there was some bad, and January 6th was the ugly. Let's start with the good. Um, the Trump administration actually, prior to the election, did a very effective job of getting ready. There was a fellow in the White House named Chris Liddell, 
who was the um he was the deputy chief of staff and um he organized the government in a very effective way consistent with the law unfortunately the day after the election president trump kind of put a kibosh on that and slowed down the transition and that was the bad on the biden side president biden obviously came to office with more experience than any other candidate in history. The next perhaps most prepared president was George H.W. Bush. He had a very large team. He started early in February or March working on the transition, appointed Ted Kaufman, former senator, and Jeff Zients, um, who later ran uh, COVID response. And um, they organized a very effective transition planning effort with more than 800 people and anticipated a lot of the problems that occurred, anticipated delays and anticipated lack of cooperation um, and prepared for it. After the election, uh, there was this period of time when the formal transition did not start on time because the president didn't recognize the outcome of the election and his officials didn't launch the formal transition. And then once the formal transition was launched, which occurred in mid-December, there were most of the agencies did cooperate with the Biden team, but there were some that just didn't. The Office of Management and Budget just refused to collaborate with the Biden team. The Office of the United States Trade Representative really didn't cooperate until after January 6th. And the Defense Department also didn't really cooperate as much as they should. So, you know, the, the country benefits from cooperation between the outgoing and incoming, regardless of your party or your political affiliation. We want the government to work well, and it requires bipartisan cooperation. Can you also talk about some of the chaos from the prior transition in 2016 with the sacking of Chris Christie? Okay, so you're talking about the 2016 election. And there the story, much like in 2020, again, in 2020, the officials below Trump did a good job. And then once Trump got involved, kind of the wheels fell off. In 2016, uh, Trump asked former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, to organize his transition. <clears throat> he appointed a person named Rich Bagger, who was his longtime chief of staff. He's a lawyer and he's a, a senior executive in the pharmaceutical industry to run it. He's a very organized, effective leader and executive. And they did a good job. They had lists of actions prepared. They had a list of personnel um, for the president-elect to consider. Um, they did everything that one would expect to do. And then the day after the election, Trump fired Chris Christie. You recall that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, had a longtime dispute with Chris Christie and he was just pushed out and all of his work was dumped in the trash. And so the goal of the work of the Partnership for Public Service and the Center for Presidential Transition is to encourage early planning, to encourage uh, transition teams to be formed and organized. And um, the, Chris Christie did it and then it just, it just was wasted. And so you had a very, very chaotic transition you had a very poor start to the Trump administration, chaotic, lots of personnel problems. And I asked Chris Christie what the impact was, and he basically said Trump never recovered. This gets back to your first question, which is a good start is essential to effective governance. 
so there are there parallels between that that 2016 and and the 2020 uh, transitions in your view, or the parallels were that if Trump did not focus on the issue, and he let some of the people under him work on it without interference, things actually went well. And then once he personally focused on it, chaos ensued. Is there anything else we can say about? I, I want to get into some of the other. Um, transitions you discuss in the book. Uh, but is there anything else that can be said about uh, the 2020 transition? What, what are the main lessons that we as a country can learn from it? So the Biden team actually did such a good job that it, it'll create a template for future transitions. They started early. They went big. They integrated policy issues with their personnel process, with their work with government agencies, Um they utilized the full extent of opportunities to, for example, there's a provision in law that allows you to get uh, p- people cleared, national security uh, security clearances prior to the election so that after the election, you can get national security people in place quickly and have them uh, exposed to classified briefings. Um, I think that there's a lot of, good work that the Biden team did that will be copied in the future um, by Republicans and Democrats. Um, I also think that there were a number of Republicans, Democrats that, you know, as is the tradition, came together to um, collaborate and make the transition smoother. Transitions have historically, prior to President Trump, been a very nonpartisan, nonpolitical exercise because it's essentially an exercise for the good of the country. The American people speak on election day, and the country benefits from an effective, organized federal government. Um, and so it's been a, a nonpartisan issue, and hopefully we'll get back to that. In terms of dealing with um, future presidential transitions, how, how can we avoid things like the, the kind of massive unrest um, we saw in the Capitol, the, 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 what's been called the insurrection like, what are the safeguards we can have against incidents like that in the future going forward? I think that's a big question that many, many Americans are debating. I do happen to think that there is some uniqueness um, of those issues with with Donald Trump that, um, you know, to use Mitch McConnell's words, you know, he incited an insurrection. So that's not a partisan statement on my behalf. That's that's what Mitch McConnell said. Um, on the podcast that I hosted and in the book, Ken Burns talks about how we've had 231 years of presidents peacefully handing over power since George Washington handed the reins to John Adams. That presidents have co- come and gone. Many of them have not wanted to leave. But until 2020, no troops have been alerted, no arms had ever been raised, no one died during a presidential transition until then. And so I actually think that that it's uniquely associated with Donald Trump, and we've never had these problems in the past, even though we've had bitterly, bitterly divided elections, including Bush v. Gore, where... 537 votes in one state 
determine the outcome of an election, which ultimately went to the Supreme Court of the United States. And Vice President Al Gore gave one of the most gracious concession speeches ever, basically saying, I disagree with the outcome of this election. I don't believe it's fair, but we're one country that needs to come together. And I want the country to come together under President Bush. Um, there have only been four times in the United States history when a president has not showed up to his successor's inauguration. The last one before Donald Trump was Andrew Johnson. Um, so, you know, the that's 140 years between the last time where things were so divided that a president didn't show up to his successor's inauguration. So I, no, I do think overall, that there's Overall, that's a pretty good, you it's know, a good track record. record. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a good record. So then um, let, let's talk about some of the other more turbulent transitions. I, I don't know uh, if you want to start with uh, Buchanan to Lincoln, or do you want to do uh, Hoover to Roosevelt first? Okay, let's start with Buchanan to Lincoln, because everybody agrees that that was the worst transition in history. So 1860, Abraham Lincoln gets elected. And in between the time he's elected and the time he's inaugurated, Seven states seceded. A different president was elected, Jefferson Davis. Half of Buchanan's cabinet basically either defected or gave their loyalty to the South. Congress was paralyzed. President Buchanan was paralyzed. And Abraham Lincoln was in Springfield, Illinois. And it wasn't like you could just pick up the phone and call or send a fax. I mean, he was out of touch. So the country is falling apart. And there's a wonderful book, and which is profiled in, in my book and on the podcast called Lincoln on the Verge by a historian named Ted Widmer. And Ted's basic thesis is that Lincoln took this train trip from Springfield, Illinois to Washington, D.C., 13 days, where he went to 30-ish cities, and at each city along the way, crowds got larger. So 15,000 people in Springfield, Illinois, 25,000 in Cincinnati, Ohio, 50,000 in Buffalo, 500,000 in New York. And during this process, Lincoln transitioned. He grew his beard, and he found his voice. And many of the themes that he, that became part of the Lincoln presidency were developed on this train trip. The other thing that happened was there was an assassination attempt. So the then Secret Service or the equivalent found out that there was an assassination, there was going to be an assassination attempt when he crossed a bridge on his train south of Baltimore, that there were people that wanted to blow up the bridge. And so what happened is he was in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, and he had a particular train, which was called the Special, and they had published the train trip and the, tr the schedule. So he snuck out of the governor's mansion one evening in Harrisburg and got on a commuter train and got to Washington well in advance of when his train was supposed to get there. And then they announced that he arrived. And so the assassins were still in this place south of Baltimore. They were arrested and hung, but he escaped the transition. He escaped assassination, but the country fell apart 
during this period of time and Lincoln had to put it back together again, obviously civil war that went on for four years. Then the, the Hoover to Roosevelt transition is another fascinating one, which is covered extensively in the book. Here the debate is, we know that the Buchanan to Lincoln transition is the worst in history. What's the second worst? And the historians that I interviewed debated, well, is it 1932 to 1933 or is it 2020? So again, 2020, we had a pandemic. We had a racial reckoning in the, in the wake of George Floyd's murder. We had a political crisis um, and we had 20 million Americans out of work because of COVID. And you had an outgoing president who wouldn't cooperate with the incoming. In 1932, we were at the height of the Great Depression. Banks ran and failed in 25 states. Um, Hitler came to power. Japan left the League of Nations starting the Imperial March. Congress was ineffective. And you had farm failures and basically starvation. Americans died because of starvation. And Hoover would not cooperate with Roosevelt because he felt that Roosevelt was a feeble mind and feeble body. And Hoover didn't agree with the New Deal. And his idea of a transition was to try to convince uh, Roosevelt to abandon his New Deal policies. So that was a pretty bad transition. And I guess history will tell whether 2020 or 1932 was worse. I was also interested, since you cover a lot of the modern uh, transitions, starting, I believe, with um, the the transition from Ford to Carter. I was wondering, what was it like um, covering that that uh, specific transition, Ford to Carter? Because I, I feel like we don't always hear a lot about um, presidential transitions. And I, I was interested in hearing more about that one. Um, and I'm glad, by the way, this is just a side note to all of this. I'm glad that you, this uh, book has been made because I, I think it's a topic that needs to be covered more. Uh, presidential transitions. It seems like this is the first book of its kind to really cover it all in depth. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope people buy the book. Um, so Ford to Carter was interesting because obviously Ford was the um, first president not elected. Um, he lost the election to Carter. Um, they did show goodwill to the Carter administration Jimmy Carter, to his credit, was the first modern president to allocate time and staff to transition planning. He was an engineer and a planner and, you know, very linear in his thinking. And so he hired about 50 people to work on his transition separate from the campaign, which is great. That's best practice. He failed to do one thing. He didn't tell his campaign about it. And so his campaign is running the election. They're running the campaign. They have plans. And about a week before the election in 1976, stories started breaking out in the press um, about Carter's plans. Carter's going to do this. Carter's going to do that. And the campaign didn't know where these stories were coming from. And so on, in the book, Stu Eisenstadt, who was the chief domestic policy advisor for President for Governor Carter in the campaign and then took on that role in the in the election in the in the government, went to Carter and said, We don't know where these stories are coming from. There are all this stuff coming out about what you plan to do. It's not coming from us. Do you know anything about this? And Carter said, Oh, I have this whole team working on a transition. 
You didn't know about that? And Stu said, nobody knows about it. And so what happened is you had two camps that were working on different things, part of the Carter organization, and they had very, very different views. Um, and they created a clash. It created a clash between the campaign and the transition over ideas, over jobs, over direction, and over power. And Stu Eisenstadt would basically say that that clash hurt the first year of the, buy of the Carter administration because um, it created dysfunction and disagreement among the people that took over the government. Uh, out of curiosity, how have presidential transitions uh, maybe changed over time or how have they evolved uh, with regards to the way they're handled? So transitions have become more professional. They've become better funded. Um, there used to be a feeling that for a candidate to work on transition planning, it was presumptuous. It looked bad. And now because of legislation that's been passed around presidential transitions, actually um, there are incentives for candidates for office to actually do the planning that not doing the planning would look irresponsible. And that's good for our country because you want every candidate for office to assume they're going to be elected. This is one of the problems that Trump had. He didn't think he was going to win. And then when he won, he wasn't prepared. So it's good government. It's effective policy for candidates to be organized, to allocate resources, to have staff and to um, plan for the transition. And that's happened. So wrapping up here, one question I was really interested in, in asking you is you, you talked to a number of people uh, about presidential transitions, scholars, journalists. I'm wondering what was the most um, insightful um, conversation you had with regards to someone who actually participated in uh, a presidential transition team? Uh, because it seems like it's a, a very it would be a very stressful um, job. It, there's so much that goes into it. But what were some of the insights you got from actual participants into the transition process? So the couple of people I learned the most from were people like Josh Bolton, who was President Bush's chief of staff and worked on the 2000 transition, and John Podesta, who was Clinton's chief of staff in the outgoing uh, Clinton to Bush transition. Then he ran Obama's transition and he was Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, obviously supervised a transition that never happened. They both would tell you that you need to start early. <clears throat> you need to have a, a person running the transition who is a peer or as close to a peer of the president or the candidate as anybody else. That the person running the transition needs to be above politics. They can't be looking for a job themselves. They have to have to be an honest broker that you need to hire people with experience in the agencies and in government to participate in the transition, um, that you need to have total confidence that you'll have uh, confidentiality so issues don't leak, um, and that you need to have everything planned out for the day after the election so that you're ready to go. You can't start making things up right after the election. I also learned the following thing from Mac McClarty, who was President Clinton's first chief of staff. Clinton obviously was a very successful two-term government, uh, two-term president. 
he had a very bumpy transition. He came from a small state. He didn't plan enough. And what Mac said was, if you fall behind in transition planning, you can never catch up. That it's a it's a it's a curve of work that ramps up, and um, you you need to be ahead. You can't fall behind. If you fall behind, you're just in the hole forever. Yeah, especially because you only have. I mean, it's it's like you basically have 75 days to do this. So one false move, you're behind, you know, maybe a, a couple of days and then it just it snowballs. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, David Marchick, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Use. And I guess uh, in closing, I know a lot of people are concerned about, um, you know, I guess transitions in the future after what happened in 2020. And I know, you know, we may not have that again because, you know, that I'm not sure we're going to have another, uh, you know, election with a figure like Trump. Uh, that being said, what would you say to people that are concerned uh, about, you know, uh, transitions now that it's in the news more? How can we ensure a, a peaceful transfer of power? Well, I think that um, we need responsible leaders, whether you're Democrats or Republicans, to take this seriously. We need the Congress to take it seriously and put pressure on the candidates to plan allocate resources and uh, prepare. We need the American public to um, ask questions and expect that a candidate for office is going to be someone that is prepared to govern, prepared to plan, and takes transition planning seriously. And we need to ensure that that Congress allocates enough funds and resources and creates um, the legal environment that a peaceful transition of power can happen in the future. You know, it's literally a matter of life and death for Americans, and it's the foundation of our democracy. So it's hard to imagine anything being more important than continuing the 230 plus years of a peaceful transition of power. Thank you again, David Marchick, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks for having me. Next up, Tom Hartman returns to the program to discuss the latest entry in his Hidden History series, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. In this conversation, we'll be discussing what neoliberalism is, its relationship to thinkers like Milton Friedman, F.A. Hayek, and Ludwig von Mises, the neoliberal experiment in Chile, and the dictatorship of General Pinochet, neoliberalism under Reagan and Clinton, and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Tom Hartman, author of The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking with, Tom Hartman, author of the Hidden History series, and his latest is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness, which friend of the show, Greg Pallas, refers to as a hand grenade of a book. How are you doing, Tom Hartman? I'm great. How are you, JG? Very good, very good. And I'm excited to talk about this book. 
I guess where I wanted to start is maybe defining neoliberalism, because I think a lot of people see the term used, but they don't always know what we mean by it. Neoliberalism. Uh, well, first of all, the, the word was hatched by or, you know, the, the phrase came, was come up with by a group of European economists. And so in Europe, liberal means something very different than it does here in the United States. Here in the United States, it's like, you know, the political philosophy associated with the Democrats and the left. In Europe, liberal is the economic philosophy associated with the right. We would call liberalism, Europe, Europeans would call Reaganomics liberalism. So first of all, there's that. And they wanted to come up with the new liberalism. Um, their goal was to, they had this meeting in 1936, as I recall, in, um, in Paris, where they were trying to figure out how to prevent a, uh, a democracy like Germany had been from ever flipping fascist again, or any country like Russia had been from becoming uh, communist, like the Soviet Union had. And they thought that economics was the answer. So they came up with this um, idea that if only all the all the democracies were to adopt this economic policy of um, deferring everything to the to the marketplace, essentially, the marketplace is more important. The economy is more important than elections, than voting, than politics. Um, politicians and, and government should basically defer to the marketplace. Of course, the largest players in the marketplace would be the ones who have the most power, number one. Number two, uh, a corollary to that is deregulation, that we're, we're going to end government oversight of corporate activity. The third is ending labor unions. Labor unions were seen as an interference in the so-called free market, and therefore they distort marketplaces. The fourth was ending the social safety net. Um, this, uh, In fact, the rationale that Hayek came up with for this was that uh, the first country to have a single-payer healthcare system was Germany in 1886, and they were the first country to go fascist. They were actually the second. It was the first was Italy, but in any case, um, and therefore we can't have these liberal social safety net programs because they lead to fascism. Um, another premise was uh, that the people who are the most productive members of society, the very very rich and the giant corporations shouldn't be paying taxes because that's a penalty, which uh, penalizes you for success. So, you know, cut the taxes on rich people and big corporations. Um, government should not, another point was government should not basically do anything other than run the army and the police and the courts. And uh, so everything should be privatized that is a government function. And finally, the idea that inequality that comes about as a result of this and monopolies that come about as a result of a lack of regulation are actually good things. These are signs of a healthy economy, not an unhealthy economy. Hey, people are getting rich. Hey, companies are doing well. Um, and we should applaud them rather than try to regulate them. If you could, could you talk a little bit about uh, maybe the figures who pushed neoliberalism, uh, the most important figures to this story, and uh, what circumstances did neoliberalism arise in? What was it um, trying to attack or what was it trying to go against at the time? Well, as, as I mentioned, I mean, the goal of neoliberalism was to uh, strengthen democracies so that they would not be uh, tempted to flip into fascism or communism. Um, obviously, <laughs> that's not how it worked, uh, but that was that was their shtick. Um, and uh, the, the the three major players were uh, Ludwig, Ludwig von Hayek, um, uh excuse me, Ludwig von Mises, Frederick Hayek, and, and uh, Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman was an American, Hayek and Mises were, were both Europeans. 
they both fled to uh, to the United Kingdom during the Hitler reign, and ultimately Hayek ended up here in the United States. And um, you know, they 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 were economists. They were true believers that that their science, the eco economics, had the answer to all problems. You know, it was the solution to everything. And uh, it was a classic example of uh, Abraham Maslow's famous dictum that when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, they really thought that if they could simply change the way economics worked in democracy after democracy, that these democracies would become bulletproof. Uh, you know, like I said, they were sadly wrong. It was it was it, you know, it's a classic example of the road to hell is paved, paved with good intentions. Although they were, you know, I mean, they were men of their time. I suppose you could give them that. But all three were extremely racist. So, and that was part of their philosophy, actually. I want to get to Reagan and neoliberalism in America. But maybe we could also talk, because I know your book covers um, General Pinochet and um, neoliberalism sort of globally. So can you talk about the neoliberal experiments in places like Chile and, and whatnot? Well, Milton Friedman here in the United States had been aggressively selling neoliberalism. He he had a, a, a very unethical and and uh, on the QT deal with a group uh, called Fee, the, the Foundation for Economic Education, that was a front group for the real estate lobby. And Fee wanted to get into politics. They invented a political party uh, to uh, that that would basically go out there and promote the idea that there shouldn't be rent control. This was their big fear at the time was rent control. And they were also generally opposed to zoning regulations that might make development difficult. And uh, this political party that they created was the Libertarian Party. And I mean, they, they invented this out of a whole cloth as just a front group for deregulating the real estate industry to increase their profits. They had cut a deal with Milton Friedman where he published a brochure. He wrote a brochure for them trashing rent control and they published millions of copies of it. And he made a lot of money off that, uh, again, without disclosing it to anybody while he was still, you know, being an economics professor. So, um, you know, he he uh, uh, was a, an aggressive marketer and a very successful marketer. He was very good at getting his name in the headlines. He was writing a, a weekly column that was syndicated by one of the big uh, syndicate uh, in newspaper column syndicators. Uh, he was uh, regularly profiled. Uh, he was on television all the time. You know, he was a big he was a big voice. He was, you know, like what Grover Norquist was maybe 20 years ago during the tail end of the Reagan thing. You know, the guy out there saying, you know, sign our pledge, no more taxes, that kind of thing. Um, only he was more he was taken even more seriously than Grover Norquist because everybody just assumed he was just an academic. They didn't realize he was a, you know, a right wing crank. And so uh, in throughout the 50s, he was pushing neoliberalism here in the United States. And, you know, there were a few people who really bought into it. Barry Goldwater uh, was one of them, for example, uh, you know, who ran for president in 64, but and William F. Buckley as well. But by and large, most Americans and even most Republicans saw neoliberalism as a as crackpot. Uh, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1980 referred to neoliberalism as voodoo economics and uh, in that primary and uh, against Reagan. So uh, what happened was in 1973, uh, down in Chile, the economy of Chile, the, the, the largest part of their economy was uh, three major copper mines. They, they provided about 20% of the world's copper. I mean, this is massive. They were like the Saudi Arabia of copper, you know, Saudi Arabia to oil, that was Chile to copper. And all three of those mines as a result of uh, American 
you know, uh, colonialism in the late eight, eight, late 18, 1900s, 19th century, the late 1800s, had uh, been uh, brought under the ownership of American companies who were paying the Chileans, uh, they were paying their laborers crap wages, and, and it was very dangerous work mining. And they were paying the government of Chile pennies on the dollar for the, for the copper that they were extracting and shipping to the United States for processing. So uh, Allende, uh, the president of Chile, said uh, he put together a commission to figure out what these three mines were worth because he wanted to buy them from these three American companies for a fair price and then uh, nationalize them, make them, you know, have all the money from them go to the government, go to the go to Chile rather than, um, you know, just going to, to the United States. And that for them was intolerable. They they went to the Nixon administration. This was 73 and um, and said, you know, you've got to do something about this. You've got to stop this. This is just uh, we can't we can't deal with this. And the other uh, precipitating factor was IT&T, International Telephone and Telegraph, uh, was a company that owned telephone companies all over the world. Uh, AT&T was America. IT&T was everywhere else on the planet. And uh, they had a partnership with the CIA that was uh, suspected at the time all across the world, but not widely known. And uh, they controlled uh, more than half of the telephone systems in Chile. And they gave the CIA access to those phone systems so that they could wiretap pretty much anybody they wanted. And uh, the other thing that Allende was going to do was he was going to nationalize IT&T's telephone system. Again, pay them a fair price, but take it over. So IT&T went to Henry Kissinger and said, you know, and the CIA went to Henry Kissinger and said, we're going to lose massive amounts of intelligence here, uh, not just about Chile, but about South America in general, if uh, Allende is allowed to go forward with this. So at that time, the, the rabble rouser in the Chilean military was General Augusto Pinochet, um, who was uh, famous for basically his brutality. I mean, he was just he was uh, notorious. And uh, so the CIA in the United States uh, and a program that was signed off on Nixon by Nixon and largely organized by Henry Kissinger uh, staged a coup on 9-11, September 11th, 1973. It's Chile's 9-11. They, they've had a 9-11 since then. And uh, Pinochet rolled into Santiago with uh, the army and tanks and right up to the presidential palace. Uh, Allende was in there with uh, 15 or 20 of his uh, loyalists, his, his uh, people in his administration. He gave a national address on the radio saying, I'm sorry, this is, uh, you know, I can't do anything about this. And then committed suicide, shot himself in the head or somebody shot him in the head. That, that's still a kind of an open discussion. And uh, Pinochet took over and immediately he reached out to Milton Friedman um, and uh, probably at the at the suggestion of Henry Kissinger. And because Nixon was not that big into neoliberalism, but Kissinger probably was. I mean, nobody really knows at this point. But uh, Milton Friedman went down to Chile to advise the, 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 the new dictator. And, you know, basically they were like, you know, one of the first things they did was privatize their social security system. Uh, they they uh, privatized, you know, hundreds of government owned companies, maybe dozens, actually, I shouldn't say hundreds because there wasn't that much. I mean, the government owned maybe 30, 40 percent of the economy. And um, when people started rebelling uh, because wages were slashed, unions were outlawed. I mean, you know, they put into place the list that I gave you earlier um, and taxes on rich people were slashed. 
when people started protesting, uh, Pinochet just had them arrested, taken to the national stadium, tortured, um, executed, uh, buried, you know, there and in other places. Uh, some 3000 people were taken in helicopters out over the ocean and uh, thrown out of the helicopters. And, and uh, Pinochet bragged about that. I mean, you know, they wanted people to know they were doing that to try to suppress the uh, demonstrations. And uh, so, you know, over the next uh, almost two decades, um, Pinochet just ruled Chile with an iron fist. He imposed neoliberalism. It produced a massive inflation. It produced one of the worst depressions Chile had ever had. Um, it was compl a complete failure. And finally, you know, people had a, a, a vote and they kicked out Pinochet and he ended up in, you know, in the dock in, in Spain. And, uh, you know, Chile is now a, a democratic republic. Real quick, uh, because I think uh, Pinochet and Chile are an important part of this story because the way neoliberalism is sort of framed by its biggest defenders, is it's, it's all about, um, you know, making us more free and, and more democratic. And, you know, it's, it's all about, um, it, it's almost framed in, as being this revolutionary idea uh, when really um, in, in Chile with Pinochet, I mean, this was very um, just authoritarian how it was handled. Yeah, it was a combination of right wing authoritarianism, you know, the iron fist of the state uh, combined with oligarchy, uh, with lifting up the, the largest corporations and the wealthiest people in Chile, slashing their taxes, giving them power, selling them or handing over to them. In many cases, the uh, formerly government owned companies, um, helping them acquire companies from smaller you know, businesses from smaller companies. And uh, in some ways, you know, it kind of became a model for the Reagan administration and, and certainly for the Trump administration. So that's a good launching off point to get into um, the Reagan era and what's been called the Reagan revolution, where neoliberalism really sort of comes into its own in America at that point. What led to the Reagan revolution and what was it effects on um, issues like the, the labor movement in the U.S.? Well, uh, to answer the last part of the question first, when Reagan came into office, about a third of Americans had union jobs. Uh, and today it's 6% in the private workforce. It's just, you know, Reagan declared war on labor unions. And that was part of the neoliberal agenda. Um, it was also uh, a, a plan, an explicit plan, you know, uh, by the Republican Party to defund the Democratic Party, because at that time, the vast majority of the funding for Democratic national candidates was union money. And, uh, and that was very successful. I mean, it, you know, they so broke the union movement that by 1992, when, excuse me, when Bill Clinton ran for president, um, there wasn't enough union money to support a, a presidential run. And so he had to start going hand in hat to corporations. And that was when the Democratic Party decided that they would start taking corporate money the way the Republicans were. They would just do it with clean corporations like insurance companies, banks, you know, that sort of thing, pharmaceuticals, um, and, and leave the dirty industries to the Republicans. So um, the, the main way that Friedman uh, had been selling, Friedman had been trying to sell neoliberalism throughout the 50s and 60s as just kind of the cool new thing. And nobody was really buying it. And then in 1973, um, the, the same year that Chile uh, did their grand experiment, uh, we supported Israel in this war with Egypt. And the result was that the Arabs cut off the oil to the United States. Uh, the price of oil went from, you know, very, very little to, you know, just exploded. And the result of that was uh, a massive increase in the price of gas here in the United States that then kicked off a massive inflation because gasoline and oil are commodities that 
influence everything. You know, everything has to be transported, every product, for example. And um, so uh, at that time in 73, Friedman changed the sales pitch for neoliberalism from, you know, it's the cool new thing that's going to save democracy to this is the solution for inflation. Neoliberalism will solve inflation. All you have to do is adopt neoliberalism. And now Nixon didn't go along with that, and neither did Jerry Ford, neither did Jimmy Carter. Um, but uh, he was out there pounding the drum and selling it hard. And so when Reagan came into office in 1980, well, even during the campaign, Reagan basically said, I'm going to do this thing that Milton Friedman's been talking about. And that's when George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush said that's voodoo economics. But Reagan was convinced that this would break the back of, of uh, inflation and it would help out the rich people who were his biggest donors and the big corporations, particularly the fossil fuel industry, which was his single largest donor. And of course, this was on the back end of Jimmy Carter's presidency, where Jimmy Carter just said, we're going to we're going to end our addiction to, to fossil fuels. You had a question. Yeah, I was going to say, and Reagan just jumped right in uh, with neoliberalism as soon as he got into office, uh, you know, crushing the air traffic controllers union almost immediately. Which was one of only three unions that had endorsed him. <laughs> and he destroyed them. Yeah. So then how do we get from uh, Reagan uh, to the, the Clinton era? And is there anything else you can say about the Reagan era and neoliberalism before we jump into maybe the way that, that neoliberalism gets bipartisan support? Right. Well, you know, Reagan, Reagan uh, destroyed the trade unions. He deregulated everything he could. He tried to destroy the Environmental Protection Agency. He brought in Ann Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch's mother, uh, who is this insanely corrupt uh, old politician from Colorado, brought her in to destroy the EPA. She, after three years, had to resign in disgrace. There was all kinds of scandal around her. Um, uh, he tried to end uh, or cut uh, both Social Security and Medicare. Couldn't quite pull that off. Um, the top income tax rate when he came into office was 74% on the morbidly rich. He dropped that down to 25%. Um, it has crept up since then. Um, he was privatizing things in 1973 or 1983, excuse me. Uh, he ordered the DOJ, the SEC and the FTC to stop enforcing the antitrust laws. So we saw all of these monopolies start forming as a result. That was the mergers and acquisition mania of the 80s. Uh, the, you know, uh, Michael, uh, what's his name, starred in the movie Wall Street, uh, Michael Douglas in, in that movie Wall Street about the greed is good era. And uh, you had all these guys, these masters of the universe who were M&A artists who, like Michael Milken, who were just smashing companies together and laying off people and and uh, and proud of it. Chainsaw Al Dunlop uh, fired 20,000 people and, and uh, thought that was, you know, something for the history books. So that was that was the Reagan era. By 92... Uh, 12 years after Reagan was elected, um, Bill Clinton was elected president. But as I said, he had, you know, the crisis was that by that point in time, union density in the United States has gone from a third of Americans down to around 12 or 13 percent of Americans. And it just, you know, there wasn't enough money with the unions to to support the Democratic Party. So Bill Clinton thought, OK, well, this neoliberalism thing isn't altogether terrible. And oh, one other uh, piece of it that, that uh, I forgot to mention was free trade which really wasn't about trade. It was really about labor. It, the idea of free trade is that a corporation should feel free to go anywhere in the world and find the cheapest labor they can. Uh, Jack Welch, the former CEO of GE, famously said, you know, uh, if we could, General Electric would build our factories on barges and then just move them from country to country as labor costs go up. And so, uh, you know, Bill Clinton embraced that when he signed NAFTA. In fact, he campaigned on that in 1992. 
which brought in Ross Perot, who got almost 20 percent of the vote, over 19 percent of the votes by saying, you know, if you guys do this neoliberal free trade thing, there's going to be this giant sucking sound from the South. And sure enough, there was. Um, but Bill Clinton held to that. I mean, it was a huge experiment at the time. There were, a, you know, a lot of Democrats and the entire Republican Party who were saying, well, maybe this will work. Maybe we should try this out. And and it kind of looked like Reagan's embrace of neoliberalism had crushed inflation. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I bought a house in 81 or 82 and, and it was like something like 16 percent interest rate. You know, it was just insane. And, uh, you know, within a couple of years, it was down, you know, down into normal ranges. So, uh, you know, that's that was when the Democratic Party went neoliberal and 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 basically held to that uh, right up until the election of, of uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the first president since 1980 to explicitly repudiate neoliberalism, uh, not using that word, but but the tenets of neoliberalism and to embrace classic economics, Adam Smith economics, um, you know, the kind of economics that built America over the last 240 years. So, you know, it seems like we're at the end of the neoliberal era. Time will tell, but it sure looks that way to me. Before we close out, maybe you could um, explain why you're hopeful that um, Biden is maybe trying to take us out of this neoliberal era. I think over the last 40 years, what we've seen is how neoliberalism has failed. I mean, there's been a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the middle class up to the top 1%, for example. Uh, I grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood in South Lansing, Michigan. Uh, it was a brand new uh, uh, subdivision in 1956 when my dad bought our house, a little three bedroom, one bathroom house uh, that you know my three brothers and I and my mom and dad lived in. And uh, the house, as I recall, cost 13, maybe it was $15,000. When my dad died in 2006, uh, we put it on the market and it was worth about 90,000. So that's you know lower middle class. In that, just on the one city block that I lived on, there were two families. Everybody worked at General Motors and you know, was making good money. There were two families on that block who had summer homes up north in, in rural Michigan. You know, they weren't fancy. They weren't palaces or anything, um, but they had summer cottages. Um, that was the middle class back then. You could have, you know, you, my dad bought a new car every two years. We took a vacation every year. I mean, you know, with a good union job, you could have a middle class lifestyle and you could even, you know, buy a summer cottage. Um, Reagan, you know, 40 years of Reaganomics just wiped that out. I mean, there's not, I guarantee you in that, in that neighborhood in South Lansing, where I grew up, there's not a single person living there now who has a, a summer home at Houghton Lake. It just zero, not even possible, not even remotely possible. And so we've seen this massive transfer of wealth uh, to the very, very rich. We now have three men who own more wealth than the bottom half of America. Um, the, uh, it's it, it, the, the, the wealth inequality has reached levels that are stupefying that we literally we've never seen before in the United States and uh, in the developed world have never before been seen either. And so I think that, you know, people have figured out that it was a con, it was a scam or it was a bad, a bad idea, shall we say, uh, that became a con and a scam. Uh, and, you know, Republicans are still pushing it. They're still they're still ad adhering to it uh, for obvious reasons, but uh, because, you know, the rich people support them. But Democrats, I think, have turned uh, uh, largely. Most Democrats have turned away from this. You still have a few, you know, Kirsten Cinema and, and Joe Manchin, for example. Um, but by and large, I think the Democratic Party is waking up. What, what do you see the Democratic Party as? I, I guess where do you see the Biden administration signaling that they're they're sort of shifting away from neoliberalism, or where do you see other Democrats saying we need to shift away from this? 
Well, you know, Barack Obama was willing to raise the uh, raise the retirement age of Social Security up to 67. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he was uh, Obamacare is a neoliberal policy. It's entirely privatized. I mean, there's no there's no government in there. It's it's all private health insurance companies. You know, we're giving them our money, but it's all private health insurance companies making billions of dollars in profits every year. So, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden is stuck with a whole bunch of neoliberal programs like Obamacare. But, you know, basically, uh, you know, he's he's in favor of unions. He wants to bring back unions. He's in favor of raising the minimum wage. Um Excuse me. He's in favor of strengthening Medicare and Social Security and expanding Medicaid. Um, it, it, these are all things that fly in the face of neoliberalism. Um, you know, the, the the list is much longer than that. But uh, you know, we'd have to go through policy by policy. In closing, I just want to touch on on two things here, uh, if we could, and that's essentially, I, I think we've had a lot of propaganda over the years uh, attacking, you know, for instance, things like unions. Um, you know, especially by the right wing, just attacking the idea of unions. You know, everything is, oh, they're corrupt, Jimmy Hoffa, whatnot. And I, I think even attacking the, the legacy of FDR, you know, oh, you know, welfare is, is bad and whatnot. So how do we maybe uh, get back the legacy of what unions were able to do for workers and what FDR's policies did for the people? Yeah. Well, FDR brought us the minimum wage, unemployment insurance, Social Security, um, the uh, regulatory agencies that provided for safety in the workplace, child labor laws. You know, there's just a lot of stuff that people just take for granted and assume is like part of the normal fabric of America that didn't exist before Franklin Roosevelt's administration. Um, uh, The rest of the question was. I was just asking about. um... How can we sort of combat the propaganda we've heard oh, yeah, over the years yeah, about and the, against labor union. and against unions and against? Yeah, FDR. there were some corrupt unions. I mean, you know, Jimmy Hoffa ran the Teamsters and and used their their uh, pension fund as a slush fund for himself uh, to buy, you know, to invest in a land deal down in down in Florida, the Sun Valley land deal. That's what uh, he got busted for, and uh, during the Eisenhower administration, and he gave uh, Richard Nixon, who was then vice president, a half million dollar cash bribe, and uh, to drop the charges against him, which they did. And then, of course, you know, when Jack Kennedy came in as uh, into the White House, they brought the charges against Hoffa back up again, which sent Hoffa and the and his mob associates off on a you know on a plan to kill Kennedy. Um, but you know, yeah, there was some corruption in the unions just because there was so much money sloshing around. Um, that that has not been the case, you know, for forty years by and large. It's just it, it just is no longer the case. And I think that, you know, if you look at the union movements, particularly around Starbucks and Amazon, where they're most visible, but they're Casey happening. Pitkin was just on my show talking about that. Uh, you know, they're doing great work. Yeah, that's right. And 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 people have figured out and particularly Gen Zers, you know, the Zoomers, uh, you know, who I think are going to be the salvation of our country, um, have have figured out that the, the whole anti-union riff is a scam that, that you know, you have massive power in the workplace. Uh, companies are essentially kingdoms and the CEO is essentially a king and uh, or queen, as the case may be. And, uh, you know, power goes from the top down, period. And uh, what a union does is it brings democracy into that workplace. Now, it doesn't force the company to make all decisions democratically, but it certainly gives the employees some say in the conditions of their employment and the terms of their employment. And that's a big deal. You know, power should be shared. Um, I, I'm frankly more a fan of uh, workers' co-ops than even unions, but that's a huge long way down the road, you know. So 
I, I, I just think that the generation coming up now doesn't even remember the Hoffa scandals. I mean, Hoffa was was murdered in the 70s, as I recall. And uh, I, I think Louise and I lived in Detroit at that time. So it must have been around then. And uh, at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant where we used to eat dinner and <laughs> near Dearborn. And uh, so, I, you know, I think it's a new day. I, I really do. And, and I see a I see a new generation coming up. My generation is fading out and dying off. And, and uh, the Zoomers are coming up and a lot of gen, uh, a lot of uh, millennials are coming up and saying, no, hey, wait a minute. You know, let's 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 just reject this stuff that has not worked for 40 years. We've had this 40 year experiment before that. We had another 40 year experiment. FDR came in in the 1930s and that lasted right up until the 1980s. Well, really, from 1940 to 1980. You had a 40 year experiment of good economics. And then from 80 to 2000, you had a 40 year or to 2020, you had a 40 year experiment of bad economics. And, you know, we could just stand back and look at the difference. Well, Tom Hartman, I want to thank you again for coming on uh, Parallax. Also, I, I just got to get your thoughts briefly here. Uh, what are your thoughts on the on the midterm elections? Well, there's good news and bad news. Uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, Roe v. Wade showed up in a big way. Um, blowing up the the blue wave and uh, and again it showed up mostly with with uh, zoomers uh the gen z was uh, 32 points democratic as i recall that vote uh the millennial vote was two points democratic the gen xers were 11 points republican and the boomers were 13 points republican so you know uh the the zoomers saved us <laughs> they, they saved our country I was going to say, I think you, you meant blowing up the red wave, like stopping the red wave. Oh, did right? I say blue wave? My yeah, fault. I think you did. <laughs> Thanks, JG. Uh, it's been a long day here. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you get going, but thank you again, Tom Hartman. And I hope everyone will pick up a copy of The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. And I would suggest uh, people get the book from their favorite independent booksellers. Me too. Thanks a lot, JG. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Tom Hartman and David Marchick. Be sure to check out their books. And as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews should be posting some Patreon-exclusive content this month. I'm trying to release more content exclusively to the Patreon for my supporters. So look forward to that if you're a Patreon supporter. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax Jerilax View with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.